0: A great bunch of songs today that uh, prepare us so well. Um, and the purpose of worship in song, the Bible tells us we, um, we are in our own hearts rejoicing and, and worshiping and praising the Lord and we also are ministering to one another. So as we sing these songs and hear each other singing these songs and our hearts pouring out to Christ for his goodness, the person in front of you and beside you and behind you is ministered to by the truth that we sing. I was just thinking during uh, Forever Rain, Jesus Messiah, the best thing this church has going for it is Jesus. (laughs) Amen. Anything else that we would put our hope in is a disaster waiting to happen. Jesus and his gospel. They are and this... The best thing is too much to say. The only thing this church has going for it (laughs) is Jesus. Amen. Well, today, we are going to be looking at uh, John three sixteen 16 through 21. Obviously, this contains the most famous verse of our time. Thanks to sports fanatics and pop culture, uh, from Tim Tebow's Eye Black to Rainbow Man. Who, who remembers Rainbow Man? Well, only a few. Okay, Rainbow Man was this guy in the 80s, probably the reason why many of us don't remember him. He wore this big, huge rainbow wig... And he had these big '80s glasses and these, this big beard, and he'd always wear these white T-shirts that say "Jesus Saves" or John three sixteen. And he went to all kinds of sporting events all over the world, and he would position himself to get on the camera to make sure that they could, the world could see him. Okay, um, he's in jail now, but that's <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Lord bless him. We even find John 3.16 mentioned at the bottom of some fast food cups, maybe behind the tag on a clothing product. Uh, the reference, just John 3.16, is well known to nearly everyone. Uh, now, the content of John 3.16 is not known to nearly everyone. Uh, nearly every one of us, and the church probably could quote it, right? If we were just to quote it, we could do it probably in different, like, King James and ESV, and so we won't do it right now, but... The meaning and the power of the content of this verse and the context that it's in is still a mystery to most. And this verse is in a context. Uh, We know that in all language, in communication, words get their meaning from their context, the words, the ideas expressed around them. Uh, That's how we determine uh, which meaning the words lie or rose. We talked about those last week. Or another good example, run. That we should understand, or the author or the speaker trying to imply there. If I say, run to the store, or if I say, your nose is running, or if I say, the refrigerator is running, how do you know which run I mean? And it's by the words, the context around the word. It's how we know whether Jesus was telling Nicodemus in the first half of John 3 that he needed to either physically jump back up into his mother's womb or to be born from above by the power and the work of God, by the will of God, by the grace of God. Understanding the context of a verse is always important, uh, but the need to understand the context should especially jump out at us as we read scripture when we see words like therefore, or because, or for. Uh, What's the first word in John 3.16? For. Context. We're going to need some context for this passage. And of course, as we look back to verses 1 through 15 of John 3, we see that our passage today, 16 through 21, is a continuation of a conversation that was being had between Jesus and Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, a top-level Pharisee, a member of the political religious Sanhedrin, and regarded as the teacher of Israel. Jesus has been teaching Nicodemus that he cannot rely on his own religion, his own efforts, his own reputation, and we will soon clearly see even his own bloodline, the fact that he's a Jew. He cannot rely on any of these things to achieve righteousness. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he must be saved. Uh, being saved means that you're in trouble and you need someone other than yourself to rescue you. And Jesus used the illustration from Numbers 21, if you remember, of Moses lifting up the serpent in verses 14 and 15 to help Nicodemus understand. Now let's read those verses to refresh our minds and prepare us for our passage today. John three fourteen and 15 say, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Remember, Nicodemus loved being compared to Moses. Moses was the hero. And Nicodemus and the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, they wanted to be the hero. Remember we said last week that Jesus coming, or the Messiah coming, was to be the crowning moment for the Jews. Even though the coming person was the coming king. They had it flipped around. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, and of course now all of us, Don't look to Moses. Do not look to yourself. Do not look to the accomplishments of man. Look to Jesus. Look and see the sinless, righteous Son of God being lifted up, glorified on the cross as our substitute, our spotless sacrifice, taking all of the punishment for our sin, absorbing all of the wrath from God that we deserve, so that he can be just, executing justice as a result of our sin, and a justifier, declaring us innocent, righteous, redeemed, saved, and given eternal life. Look to Jesus and believe, and be healed, be forgiven, saved, and have eternal life. Uh, now, the question Nicodemus may be having in his heart right now in the course of this conversation, uh, if he isn't rejecting the whole notion altogether, is why? Remember, Nicodemus has already asked twice, how can this be? How can these things be? Why would God do this, and in this way? Why would I, or why would we need this kind of salvation to be saved this, uh, this doesn't make sense. And Jesus had a way and has a way of knowing people's hearts, doesn't he? And he begins to answer these questions starting in verse 16. And primarily these two questions that we're going to think through today. Why would God do this? And why does man need this? Why does God save people like this in this way? Why does man need it? So let's pray together before we dig into this passage. Father, again, we come to you this morning, and we are thankful for the opportunity to come before you and pray that you would hear us. And God, we pray for your grace this morning as we look into your word. I pray that your word would speak to our hearts. God, help us to see you as great. That you would be, in a sense, bigger in our eyes. Because we certainly don't see you for all that you are. God, help us to see ourselves as the needy beings that we are. That we would grow in our gratitude and our thankfulness for your work for us through Jesus on the cross. And that our hearts would be poured out for the lost. God, thank you for uh, meeting our great need in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So verse 16, again, as we said, starts with the word for. And for can mean like a conclusion. So here's the previous passage. And then as a result, this. Or it can mean because. So all the information in the previous passage, why? Well, this is why. So it it comes back and brings a foundation um, underneath of the previous content that we had. So this is a because. Why would God ask us to look to Jesus and believe? Okay, and then it says, For God so loved. The grammar would be, For in this way, God loved. God loved. So part of the answer to why is that God loves. He loves. Uh, that tells us a lot about who he is and who we should be. And more on that later, because if you think about it, Nicodemus doesn't think he needs that kind of love. Why would God do this? Well, because he loves us. There's still more to learn, right? But first, who does he love? For God so loved the world. The world the world. Who was Nicodemus thinking about? Who were the good guys and who were the bad guys? The good guys, of course, were the Jews. The bad guys were everybody else. And what was the basis for their goodness, the Jews? Their bloodline and their works. We're the good guys because of our blood, we are the descendants of Abraham, and because we are awesome. So, Jesus has already started to break the mold here. In Nicodemus' mind. In his mind, God's love is contingent on who your parents are, who your ancestors are, and how good you are. That's a wrong definition of love, isn't it? And since Nicodemus saw God loving, quote-unquote, in that way, it was all uh, also how he loved, how Nicodemus would love. Uh, who cares about the rest of the world? I'm the one that's special, I'm the one who should be loved. They haven't done anything to be loved. That's a messed up view right there. Remember, uh, biblical definition of love is giving of myself, sacrificially giving of myself for the benefit of another. Do we see that in Christ? Sacrificially giving of myself for the benefit of another. That's love. Love is not finding a person who makes me feel special about myself. Or gives me tingles up and down my spine. Or butterflies in my stomach. Or makes my heart beat hard and fast. That's affection. That's delighting in something. That's not love. That's not love. So in declaring that God is loving the world, Jesus is already tearing up Nicodemus' theology, what he knows and believes about God. Remember that self-centered religion results in worship of self. And self-centered religion changes our perception of who God is, progressively making him to be very much like me. And the more I practice my self-centered religion, the more God changes and conforms into the image of my dad's son, if you get the idea. It's so important for us to remember that God is way bigger and way better than we are in every way. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So, Jesus is already blowing up Nicodemus' theology, but also in this statement, Jesus is blowing up any excuses for, think about it, racism. Racism exists because man is sinful, because man is idolatrous, because man loves himself. God so loved the world, not just Jews, not just any people group, the world. The people of God, who, remember, were formerly not a people, from First Peter 2, from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, every child of God is just as much a child of God as any other child of God, regardless of the lightness or the darkness of the shade of brown of our skin or the part of the world that we are from. A child of God is a child of God. Amen? So, how did God love the world? How did he give of himself for the benefit of others? In this way, it says, God so loved the world that he gave, he granted, his only son. And only son here, the Greek means one of a kind. Unique. Uh, This same word is used in Hebrews 11 in describing Isaac, the son of Abraham. Uh, Was Isaac Abraham's only son? Now, we know that first there was ishmael right but remember that isaac was not just not his only son but he was one of a kind and he was unique in that isaac was the son of god's promise isaac was the son of promise so jesus is god's one of a kind unique promised son the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3. The promised seed of Abraham who would bless all the nations from Genesis 12. The promised one in the line of David who would sit on the throne forever from Second Samuel 7. And the promised son of a virgin who would be named Emmanuel, God with us, from Isaiah 7. There is no doubt that God's only son, his one-of-a-kind unique son, and the son of man, the Messiah, the Christ, are one and the same. God has granted him. God has given him to the world. And continuing in verse 16, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Remember the serpent on the rod. Look and live. Look to Jesus. Believe in him. In his finished work on the cross for your sin, repent and call Jesus your Lord and Savior and be saved. Eternal life is offered to you through Jesus today. Today. If you're here today and you've never understood this or believed this or put all of your faith and trust in this Savior, If you've been thinking that it's about you or it's about your efforts or about your goodness in comparison with other people around you, do you see that's not what that is? That's not the gospel. So if you hear this today and the light bulb turned on, praise God. Repent and put all of your faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Now the next part of this question uh, that would need to be answered is why would the Messiah have to die? Uh, why couldn't he just come and kick Rome's backsides and give us our nation back, right? That's what they wanted. Uh, Nicodemus could ask Jesus, hey, we've been doing just fine here without you, but we want you to get Rome out of here. And he's totally wrong, right? He's totally wrong. This is his question, though. But here's the answer. Verse 17, again, four. It's a because kind of a four. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world understand that in the context there? Oh, this is what the Jews wanted. Condemn the world. Jesus, come, condemn the world. It's time for us to be exonerated and for everybody else to be destroyed. Yes. We are your children, the children of Abraham, the followers of Moses, and we are the only righteous ones. Come, Jesus, condemn the world. And he says, I didn't come to do that. Of course, the problem with them is that they were blind to their own blindness. And had Jesus come to condemn and to conquer, they would have been in trouble. They didn't see it that way. Going back there, God did not send his world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus had to be given to the world in his death because the whole world needs saving. Why? Why? verse 18 whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the son the only son of god so good news and gospel means good news everyone who looks to jesus and believes lives they're not condemned Romans 8, 1 says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then those who do not believe are condemned. But it says they are condemned already. Why didn't Jesus have to come to condemn the world? Because the world was condemned already. This is a term of judgment, okay? Jesus didn't have to come because they were condemned already. Every single human being who has sinned, and by the way, that's all of us, and who has not looked to Jesus and believe, our status is already condemned, guilty. In, in the sense of the judgment, uh, the idea or the verdict of our guiltiness, that's already, it, it is. We're condemned already. Think about this. Jesus didn't come to a neutral world and then start parceling out who would believe and who wouldn't. It wasn't this blank slate that he walked into, and everybody was amoral, and then Jesus come, and then there was this big split, and everybody who wanted to be with Jesus, and everybody who hated Jesus went to that side, and then from then on out, it was like that. What kind of a world did he enter into? A sinful world. A world that was already condemned. Already needing saving from their willful pursuit of damnation. So why would God do this? Why would he send his one-of-a-kind son, the Messiah, into the world? The reason is because the world is totally lost. Totally blind. Already condemned. Under the curse. And God loves them. He saves them. He gives birth and life and new hearts. He takes out the heart of stone and he puts in the heart of flesh. He gives this to them. He gives them adoption and the right to be called the children of God. Are you a child of God? Are you? Do you know why? Because God loves you. Because God loved you. That's why you're saved. Amen? <laughs> we have a good God. He sacrificially gave of himself in giving his son so that in Jesus' death, the judgment we deserve could be poured out on him and we could be saved. Romans 5.8. This is a great verse to memorize and have on the tip of your heart <laughs> and the tip of your tongue. God commended. He showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Why did God do all of this? That's why. He loves you. And it's not because, don't get me wrong, it's not because you're awesome. Remember our biblical definition of love here. It's not because you're awesome, because you're so special, because you're better than everybody else, or that you're worth it in hindsight, or in foresight. It's because you're not. God saw you in your hopeless and helpless condition and chose to pour out his love on you. Praise God. When we forget the definition of love and we think it is, that we go back to the idea of, man, that person makes me feel awesome. That's not love. That's like, you need to stay around me more so I can feel more awesome all the time. That's kind of like the opposite of love, isn't it? God didn't send his son into the world because you make him feel awesome. And he just needed a little more of that. Jesus sent his son into the world because you had nothing of awesomeness. (laughs) I was desperate. I was hopeless. And I didn't even want anything to do with Jesus. While we were yet sinners, if Jesus, if it was a husband and a wife and the man got on his knee and said, will you marry me? I would have said, no! (laughs) No! (laughs) right? I yelled at you, ha, wake up everybody. I would have said no. And he still went to the cross for me. And he still saved me. He snatched me up and put me in his hand because he loves me. Because he loves you. Praise God for his love. Now, right now I want to take a commercial break. This is a great opportunity to explain why we would say that in the gospel, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. 2 Peter 1. Or put another way, how the gospel helps me with life. How many areas of life? Life. All of it. The gospel is more than just something you learn and pray a prayer and then start trying to be a good boy or a good girl. The gospel changes everything. Everything. Three examples. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Does that mean to make sure that you never cheat? Does that mean to make sure you keep her looking pretty? Does that mean to have fuzzy feelings and romantic thoughts every day? Or that means that you don't love her anymore? No. That's all legalism. That's worldliness. That's lust. That's selfish. Christ loved the church... Sacrificially when she hated his guts And how could a man find the strength and the wherewithal to love his wife sacrificially with no preconceived notion of payback Let me rephrase that how can a man love his wife The gospel John 3 just helped The husbands here to love their wives Second Corinthians 5, this is number two. From now on, regard no one according to the flesh. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Okay, question. How do I deal with a person who's a jerk and irritates me? How should I act around people who have different political views? How should I treat people who have been unkind to me? First, love you. Uh, Good thing that we've never irritated anyone or been unkind, right? Okay, move on from that. 1 Corinthians 6.11 Such were some of you, but you have been washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by your awesome good deeds. No, by the Spirit of our God. Every single person you come into contact with has a soul. And they either are spiritually dead or spiritually alive. They're a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And that by the grace of God. Remembering the gospel and what God did to your dead self and what He did to my dead self and what He continues to do to change us and to conform us, that helps us to know how to treat people who are presently dead in their trespasses and sins. John 3 just helped us to love our neighbor as ourself. Uh, but what if the offender is a Christian? Ha, gotcha. Not so fast. 2 Corinthians 5 says that the old has passed away, the new has come. Our lives should be changing. They should be changing. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are saved, in verse 10, unto good works that God has prepared for us beforehand. John 10 says that Jesus' sheep hear his voice and they follow him. 1 John 1 9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Paul reminds us in Philippians 4, who's our prize? Who's our greatest relationship? Who's worth fighting for and striving for? Jesus Christ, our relationship with him. Matthew 18, Jesus reminded all of us in the parable of the two debtors that our sin against the master compared to other people's sin against us, not even comparable. Because of who God is and who we are and our sin against him and what he has forgiven us that we could never possibly repay versus other people's sin against us, it's not even worth trying to compare. That's the gospel, by the way. That's the gospel. Remember, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that he gave. 1 John 4. What if I'm scared that something's going to blow up when I talk to my brother or sister in Christ? Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I know the most important relationship is a relationship with Jesus, and and I should want that person, that brother or sister in Christ, to be close to Christ and to not have any sin in their life that would separate the fellowship there. I know that's more important, but what if I go to them and it blows up? And they hate my guts. And it ruins our friendship. 1 John 4, perfect love casts fear Jesus had some reason to fear in the garden of Gethsemane he said father let this cup pass from me but he loved the father and he loved you and he endured the cross for your good for your salvation is the Christian who sinned against me more important to me than their relationship with Christ? Is it more important than their life in Christ? Do I love them as God loves me? If I do, then I've got to take up my cross and follow Jesus. I've got to go to them and point them to repentance in life. Matthew 18 says it this way, Go and win your brother. Go and win your brother. The gospel helps us to know how we should love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So what are we learning today from John 3 and from the message of the gospel? Everything that we are talking about today can guide us in every area of life. And this is why, just a reminder, this is why we have to be a gospel-centered church. It matters as it relates to our eternity, and it matters as it relates to our everyday life. Okay? Okay, commercial over. That was way longer than a 30-second commercial. But back to our passage. Back to our question. Why would God do all this? Why did God have to send his son? Why did he have to give his son? Because we were condemned already and we needed to be saved. And he did that because he loves us. And now our second question. Why does man need this? Why does man need this? Uh, Nicodemus would be or, or could be asking, Why do I need to be saved? Why do we need to be saved? Uh, This is sort of like an intervention here. (laughs) The sinner is saying, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. Leave me alone. And so now in verse 19, Jesus shares what God sees. His discernment. His judgment. Verse 19. This is the judgment. This is the basis of the judgment. The light has come into the world the light. Think of the righteousness of God. In Romans 1, it says it's revealed in the gospel. And Jesus is the enactor, the personification of that message. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. This is the sad truth. Why did God and why does God need to save people? Why does salvation, the new birth, the new creation, need to be the work of God by the will of God, by the grace of God? And the reason is because people love their evil deeds more. Notice that definition of love. When we step into the darkness... Love gets flipped right back around, doesn't it? It turns back into a selfish desire. People love their evil deeds more. Left to ourselves, if given the option of Jesus or our evil works, we would choose evil. So here we go. Here's some truth with this. People don't reject Jesus because the gospel is too hard to understand. The Bible says it right here. People don't reject Jesus because the resurrection is too far-fetched of an idea. People don't reject Jesus because of any other reason that they love their sin. They love the darkness, and that is their choice. So spiritual growth and salvation is tied to our fight for love. Who do we love the most? Think back to the Old Testament prophet Hosea. And God told him to marry Gomer, the prostitute. And what did Gomer desire to do? There was a, a battle of a love affair. And she wanted to continue over and over to go back to the life that she had before. This is the battle of our hearts. Do we enjoy and love the God who loved us? took the initiative and sacrificed of himself for us, or do we love evil and want to hide it in the darkness? That's the battle that's going on. So with that, something that we can do as growing believers in Jesus Christ is continue to put before our eyes and into our ears truth that reminds us how far superior the beauty of Jesus is than any nasty, destructive thing we might get confused and think is beautiful in this world. Does that make sense? Is Jesus better? (laughs) Yeah, he's better, isn't he? How often do we forget that? How often would we be confused by that? Uh, Just some resources that can help with that, and remembering these things. Uh, One of them is a book by Milton Vincent called The Gospel Primer for Christians. It goes through 31 entries in the first part of the book that you could use as part of your devotions. That remind us of how the gospel changes everything in life, like we just talked about, and and makes the gospel amazing. <laughs> does, it, does he have to make it amazing? No, but he he reminds us that it's amazing. Another book that's really helpful, and they're both graciously short. Uh, this one is called "What Is the Gospel" by Greg Gilbert. Okay, and he takes it down to four uh, four items of what the gospel is. This is just us reminding of our reminding ourselves of of what we believe, and why we're saved. And I have hidden beneath my notes here a couple more things, okay? Um, In order to help us as well and to take the gospel to our community out in the foyer right now is a little miniature version of this book, What is the Gospel? You may have seen it when you came in today. And this takes the four points of this book and drops it down into a tract size. So I would encourage you to snag one of those or two or three and read it. Yourself, and then you're going to know exactly what you're giving people if you have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Uh, We don't think that tracts are the only way to witness to people, right? But they're a way, and it's better than no way. And so you can utilize these. Um, And by the way, next to those things is an invitation to our church on a business card. So snag that, put it inside of here, and take the gospel to people. Cool. That's available to you. On the back of this card is a, is a website called gotquestions.org. And you could, you could hand this to a person and say, hey, we'd love to have you. We want to invite you to come to church. If you have any questions, feel free to check out this website or our number's on there. Give us a call. And you can, psh, there you go. Does that make sense? Uh, these things are available and we can use these things. Remember, with that being said, and my uh, uh, encouraging you to take the gospel out, People don't reject Jesus because the gospel is hard to understand People don't reject Jesus because the resurrection is too far-fetched. It's because they love their sin Before you got saved What prevented you? Loving your sin Loving your sin If you share the gospel with someone and they say no, it's not because you were too dumb to explain it It's not because you weren't patient enough with them. It's not because you have a problem. It's not because you were offensive. It's because they didn't want to give up their sin. They might even call you nasty things. But why? Darkness. If I can reshape the truth and make you the bad guy and make me the good guy, then I'm now still hiding in the darkness. That's all it is. That's why it is. And please realize, with that, darkness is not just hiding in a closet or alone in a room for your sin. Darkness is any disguise or lie to cover our sin. Remember Adam in the garden. God, it's the woman who you gave me. That was darkness. That was a veil over the sin. That's what that was. Uh, Social groups today demanding acceptance of their wickedness. That's a form of darkness. And now don't be angry about that. Jesus looked at the crowds and had what on them? compassion, being sheep without a shepherd. They need the grace of God, and God has called us to take that to them. And then one more question, or two or three. What about the people that God saves? What are they like? What's going on with them? What's going on with us? Verse 21 says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. And that comes, in the Greek, as a passive sense. It means they're being drawn to it. Drawn to the light. Think about a bug flying into your porch light. (laughs) Except for the end part. Don't think about that part, okay? (laughs) Instead of getting fried at the end, we get Jesus. (laughs) Ours is way better than the bugs, right? (laughs) But with this drawing, we see even here that there is an external force drawing us into the light because God loves us, and that force is the grace of God. Why are we drawn to the light? Verse 21 continues, it says, so that it may be clearly seen that his works, meaning the person who's coming to the light, that his works have been carried out in God. His works means yours and mine, but we don't need to get the credit because all our works were carried out in God. Because of the grace of God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. So who gets the glory for our salvation? God does. We were helpless. We needed saving. And who gets the glory for our good works? God does. And rightly so. If it weren't for him and his grace, we would be lost in loving the darkness. We need his love. Amen? Why did God do all this? Because he loves us. And why does man need all this? Because we love darkness and we're condemned already. The world needs his love. We need his love. So church, let's look to Jesus and be saved, be changed, and give God all the glory. In church, let's look out on the crowd with compassion. They need God's love. Let's share it with them. If it's the thing that we prize in our hearts more than anything else, it'll be the thing that comes out of our mouth before anything else. Let's love them with the truth of the gospel. Let's give them the truth and give God all the glory. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us the amazing privilege of being your people on this earth and the wonderful privilege of being able to point people to you. God, help us to rejoice in the truth of the gospel, to glory in the truth of the gospel, to to love you because of the truth of the gospel. God, may it affect everything in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.